So Money episode 893, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host Megan Gorman. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everybody. May 31st. Hope everybody had a nice, maybe short week because Monday you had off for Memorial Day. I know that a lot of us are looking forward to our summer plans. And when I bring on my co-host today, Megan Gorman, we're going to talk a little bit about how to not put our finances on vacation. I don't know about you, but my summer can be pretty pricey, right? Between the activities for my kids because now they're out of school and they're they're in all the activities and camps and what have you. And of course, there's always a vacation or two and a lot more uh, eating out potentially because the weather is beautiful. You just want to get out of the house. But that typically means uh, a big, you know, a big cost over the next few months. So important to maybe remind us all how to just make sure that if we do have financial goals that we set, at least in the beginning of the year, whether it was to get out of debt, invest more for retirement, plan for the future, that we can still stay on track with those longer-term goals as we manage the day-to-day spending in the next few months. This week, uh, if you missed any of the episodes, on Monday, we had Bola Sekunbi. She is the founder of a website called Clever Girl Finance. Fantastic story about um, her immigrant roots, You know, born in Nigeria, with the lessons she learned from her mom, how her mother really was an inspiration for her to to kind of become this person now of a money expert, a CEO and founder of a financial education website that's award-winning and just a really fascinating story and really cool chick, Bola. And then on Wednesday, my friend Karen Rinaldi stopped by the podcast and Karen is the author of a book called It's great to suck at something. (laughs) And Karen in her day job is a publisher of fantastic books. And this is her, you know, her first service-driven book where she's talking about how to elevate your life, achieve fulfillment, more fulfillment in your life by pursuing something that actually scares you. And for her, this was surfing, is surfing. For me, I guess it's stand-up comedy. Everyone should have something that gets the adrenaline rushing. And um, perhaps you are terrible at it, but you always get back on the horse. You always get back on the saddle. I think there's a lot of things for me that could fall under that category. There's tennis, there's piano lessons, which I'm not doing currently, but I've always loved these things. And I think I'll never get good at them. But once I have a little bit of time, maybe I'll go back and pursue it. Um, So check out Karen Rinaldi on Wednesday. All right. Shifting gears to our Ask Farnoosh Jam session. Thank you to everybody for bringing your questions to Instagram. That seems to be the most popular way for you to find me. And I love it because I'm on Instagram a lot these days. I love building community there. And it's an opportunity for us to connect pretty quickly. And we've got questions here from Laura and Celeste and Sweta and Dom. And we have an anonymous question. 
We have our special co-host today, Megan Gorman, who is a friend of So Money. Megan is uh, the founder of thewealthintersection.com. She works at Checkers Financial, founding partner at the firm. And um, she has been, as her bio says, coloring outside the lines from an early age and continues to do so today. She's founding partner of Checkers Financial Management. She's a woman owner of a business in an industry that doesn't typically see many women in top leadership. So we're really grateful to have her back on the show. Megan, how's your start to summer going? Hi, Farnoosh. It's good. It's good. You know, I, I even though I'm in California, I just got back from being on the East Coast. And I have to tell you, I always love being on the East Coast from the Memorial Day weekend because East Coasters are so excited that the summer is coming. <laughs> you know uh, it. So, you know, yeah. So I really feel like, you know, if this is such a great time of the year, um, but lots going on, you know, obviously like a lot of people trying to get everything ready for the summer, get those vacations uh, sort of organized and paid for and, mm-hmm. you know, trying to keep my head above water at work. So it's it's just a, a lot going on. It's a lot going on. And as I talked about earlier, you know, I, I've been getting questions. I'm sensing from the audience that there's a bit of anxiety going into a season like summer because on the one hand, lots to look forward to, uh, but the spending can get out of control in the summer. And if we were the type who had financial resolutions in January, and we want to make sure that we're sticking to some of our bigger goals, whether that's to you know save more for retirement or get rid of debt, everything in between. Do you have advice for us? And I'm taking notes too, because I know this is going to be a pretty pricey summer for me um, with two kids and travel and camp and all of that. So I want to make sure that I'm still able to you know, set aside money for she stacks and make sure that I'm contributing to my SEP IRA and all of that. How do I not put my finances on vacation? Yeah, no, I mean, I think actually the summer months are a really great moment to do that sort of pause and and do a financial checkup. And I think this year in 2019, it can be even more exciting in sort of taking a look back at what you've done financially for the first five months or so of the year. And what I mean by that is, you know, you really can't get away from the news that the markets have been up this year. And so a lot of us sat there on January 1st, and this is actually something I personally do, which is I write down how much money I want to save every year. And, you know, every year that's on my list, um, I fund a 401k, you know, I write down that I want to make the full $19,000 contribution to the plan. Um, and it does take all year. It's, it's a lot of, you know, sacrifice to get there. So I think for, for a lot of us, um, you know, it's taking a look at, did we keep with what the plan was on January 1st? Did we, are we on track to meet some of these goals? And, you know, we're still at a point in the year where, there's a lot of time still left in the year and that we can still work on this. Now, I think for those of us who had financial goals that were based on retirement savings, what I would tell people is, you know, don't look at the re- your retirement accounts all the time, but this might be a chance to go back into your retirement account and take a look at the performance of the account. You know, the first five months of the year, we've had a really good run in the market. And what you want to do is sort of look and see and say, okay, did I take part in this? Because if you remember how you probably felt on December 31st about your 2018 investing, what you probably thought was not that great. 2018 for most investors was not a great, not a great year. I know personally, my portfolio was down 6%. 
But, you know, real performance in the markets is about being patient and, that you know, the markets will reward patience. So what I would tell most people and, and you too, Furnish, is let's take a look in and see how you've done. What does the performance look like year to date? And then what does it look like over the one year, the three year, the five year? And I think as you look at those numbers, I think you're going to feel pretty good because if you've been in the market over that time period, you've been rewarded. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Furnish, you've talked about being in a SEP IRA. You know, one of the questions I would ask you is, do you only fund yours at tax time or do you fund a little bit every month? Yeah, so I do fund it once a year. However, I make sure that it doesn't all get dumped into the market right away. Um, I kind of, I, I, my understanding is that it it is kind of a a gradual integration and a gradual contribution. So maybe not, it's not going to be spread out over the next year, but I do put the money mm-hmm. in the bank account uh, or rather in the SEP IRA cash on a date close to tax time to get the tax deduction. And then um, it's slowly kind of folded into my investments, if that makes sense, so that it's not super exposed right away. And if that's what you're wondering, I, I have read studies where it doesn't matter whether you do a lump sum or you do dollar cost averaging, because if you're investing over like a 30-year period, it's it, there has been studies that show that there's really not a material difference in that in either approach. But I'm curious to hear what you've what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're right. The studies do show whether you dollar cost average or what in the high net worth world we call tranching in. Uh, we like to use a French world word when we're using when we're working with wealth, I guess. Um, but whether you're tranching in or dollar cost averaging in, or you jump in on one day, you know, over the long term, to your point, it doesn't make a difference. Where it really makes a difference is the psychology of it, right? Which is if you put all your money in yesterday, and today when you woke up, you know, the markets were down four or five hundred points you would be kicking yourself, right? right? right. And then you're starting to doubt yourself. And, you know, that's what's often undermines the best investors is not the actual mechanics of the market, but the emotional aspects of it. So when you go on this more automated path, like you've done and I do with my 401k, it allows us to dip into the market on a very regulated basis. And this is where being here at that midway point in the year, which is important because the the challenge I would give to all your listeners is, you know, depending on how they're doing with debt and budgeting, if you're you're trying to fund your 401k and right now you're on the path to to maybe make half of what the annual contribution would be, could you raise it 1%, right? Could you withstand within your budget just inching it up 1% more? And that's why I think going back and looking at you know, New Year's resolutions, which for most of us is to save money, is to sort of see, have you done that? And can we reward our future selves by sort of amping it up by just even 1%? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that is potentially you know, thousands of dollars. And I think to your point, psychologically, that feels good knowing that we've taken care of some of the boring stuff before the summer kind of takes over. And we and then we, we can go about our, our spending and our summer plans without so much guilt, frankly. And, you know, I think for most of us out there, you know, the summer we do spend more, right? We go, we go out more, we're with family more. You know, I, I think a lot of us actually go overseas a lot, right? But 
you know, I think that at the end of the day, if you're if you're on vacation and you're worried about your credit card bill, you can at least say in the back of your mind, okay, I know I'm doing the right thing because I also increased my 401k contribution. So you sort of can be still patting yourself on the back, even though you're going through sort of a, a tenser budget season. Mm-hmm. And and just remember, usually the credit card bills in the summer and in that November, December, January timeframe are the worst. And so that's one of the other things I would say as you look to refresh your finances sort of at this mid-year point, which is how much am I sitting on in my cash reserve? And, you know, do I have a little bit more liquid to help me through this period of time? And the one thing I would tell most people is, you know, the good news for, for all of us now is there's so many banks out there online that are actually giving, you know, a, 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 an actual interest rate on your money. You know, you can go out there today and find banks that are FDIC insured, so your money's protected up to 250 where you can go in there and actually earn some interest on your money. And so I think checking on your cash reserve, making sure it's interest-bearing, you know, that becomes meaningful because if you have a cash reserve and it sits there for six months earning, you know, another 1%, you know, even if it just buys you dinner, a night out in December, right? it's worth every penny. And these are the little things, right? The raising at 1%, the checking your performance, and the making sure your cash reserve is working for you. These are the little tweaks in the middle of the year that's really important. Yeah. Um, I, as a side note, I got to hear astronaut Scott Kelly speak, and he's an amazing fighter pilot, and which is how he ended up becoming an astronaut. But what he talked about was, it's when you get to his level, it's not making the big changes that really, you know, separate the best from the best, but it's those little tweaks, the little shifts each way that really make a difference. And I think we should all put ourselves in that sort of seat of what he's talking about and say, okay, what is that little shift that I can do that'll really over the long term make me be a better financial person? Well, speaking of investing, I think that we have a bunch of questions here, but I want to jump to Dom, who I think has a great question. I love that he's looking out for his dad here. So he's 20 years old and he started investing recently, which is great. His dad is 65. And according to Dom, his dad has been investing for a long time. But Dom took a look at his dad's portfolio and it appears that it looks like it should be a portfolio maybe designed more for a 20-year-old or a 20 to 30-year-old, he says, because it's really heavy in equities. And so Dom wants to know, when should older people like my dad, who are looking to retire soon, get more conservative? This is this mm-hmm. I, I'm extracting a lot from this question. One, I think we got to give Dom's dad probably a lot of credit for why Dom is starting to invest so early, because it sounds like his dad has yep. been investing for a while and probably bringing his son into some of that experience. Great. Getting him interested when he's young. And Dom, you know, they're obviously looking at each other's portfolios. Dom's looking at his dad's portfolio and he's like, whoa, dad, you've got just as many, maybe, you know, 80%, I'm guessing, like a lot in stocks similar to me and wondering, you know, is my dad exposing himself too much to to stocks? And I would say, yeah, but it sounds like his dad might be overconfident, right? Because he's been doing it for a while. Maybe he's been successful. But what would you tell his dad if he was your client? Yeah. I mean, first of all, so Dom's 20 and his dad's 65. And when I was first hearing the question, the first thing that came to my mind is 65 isn't that old, right? So, so, 
and I say this as a 43-year-old, um, you know, I think the thing that we all have to sort of shift, right, is right now, most of us approach retirement planning investments with a mindset of life expectancies that were back from the 50s and 60s, right? And, you know, I say this with a father-in-law who's turning 97 today on May 31st, um, and my mother-in-law is not, uh, 89, is that what you are starting to see with the silent generation with boomers is a lot of longevity. So when I hear that his dad is 65 and he has what I would call an aggressive growth portfolio, the first question I would think about is, well, maybe his dad is very comfortable with the idea that he's got to make the money work probably for another 30 to 40 years. So that's the first piece of it. And I think it's really important for Dom, who's 20. Dom, if I find out you have any bonds in your portfolio at 20, you know, I'd be shocked because, again, (laughs) when you've got that long time horizon and you've got longevity, you've got to factor that into your strategy. I think the other thing is if Dom wants to approach this conversation with his dad, and this is the question all of us should ask ourselves, is how did you feel during the economic crisis? And I can tell you as someone who had money in the market, it was clearly nauseating. That would be the best word for it. But, you know, what I found really interesting in my clientele, and, and I'm working with high net worth, ultra high net worth, so it's, it's a little bit different. But what I thought was interesting is I had two clients in particular plow a ton of cash into the equity market during this time period. And mm-hmm. both of them were over 60. So... You know, I think the thing is, it's all very personal risk tolerance, and it's all very personal your experience. So I think the question Dom has to ask his dad, because his dad can be a useful resource, is, you know, what did you do in 08? How did you feel in 08? Are you concerned about another 08? Do you think the portfolio is appropriate? And and really listen, because to your point, Dom has clearly listened to his dad if he's 20 years old and starting to invest already. And, you know, I've got a lot of clients who are in their 60s and 70s who are sitting there with 60% equities, 70% equities. And it doesn't, it doesn't concern me because it's just making sure that they know if things pull back, if things get choppy, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah. So risk tolerance, huge, huge factor there. I don't know. I, I think I'm with you though, Megan. I think nauseating sounds pretty similar <laughs> to how I'd feel, but... Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess if they're willing to put all their all this money into stocks and at, at such a late age, they probably have a lot else going on, right? This isn't all of their net worth. Yeah, it's not probably not, you know, he probably it'd be good for Dom to understand his father's potential income stream. Is there still a pension? Where does he feel in social security? Right. Um and, and remember with portfolio construction. It's uh, you know we all get so nervous when the market pulls back. But if you think about it, for someone like Dom's father, who probably based on what Dom's written here, maybe his dad is thirty percent fixed income. If we have a market pullback, right, his thirty percent fixed income might become thirty five percent fixed income, and so that gives his father the opportunity to clip that five percent of additional fixed income and redeploy into equity. And if you do it with an unemotional viewpoint pullbacks and market volatility are really opportunity to deploy fixed income and cash into the market. And and going back to your point, Farnoosh, if you're uncertain how it's going to play out, dollar cost averaging it over a period of time can be one of the best things you do. 
All right. Good luck to you, Dom, and your dad. Next question is from Laura um, on Instagram who wants to know, do student loans need to be paid off after the borrower passes? And if yes, how does the bank collect the money? So I looked into this and I'm, uh, I don't know how often this comes up in your practice, Megan, but I do know that this really depends on the kind of loan that you have. Typically with federal mm-hmm. loans, there is no consequence as far as going after the estate or um, there's really not many federal loans that would require a co-signer because um, a lot of federal loans just have a fixed interest rate. It doesn't really care about your credit and wouldn't necessarily require um, a co-signer. In most cases, there are exceptions, but the um, federal loan borrowers have I would say safely could say don't really have much to worry about um, in the event of of, of a scary and um, tragic situation where the, bar- the borrower passes. It's and different. and I should tell you, Farnoosh, I actually do have student loans, um, and what? I have all federal ones. Well, so I'll give you the understanding behind it. I am that last group that graduated. I graduated law school in two thousand two, so my loans are at three percent, right? So, and mine are all federal loans. So one, I always joke to my husband, don't worry if I die, it'll all get paid, you know, it'll all be, you know, (laughs) extinguished. But in my case, right, and and it's because I have a very low interest rate. So I'm very unique because I'm a Gen X situation, not a millennial situation where the interest rates are higher. I know I can make more in the market because of my risk tolerance, but I know myself well. So that is very unique. But I do think that there are still people, there are a lot of people like me who do have these federal loans. And I think it's one of the nice things about the federal loans is that, you know, they do go away at death. But keep in mind, this is what's so frightening. Women hold more student debt than Mm -hmm. men. Yeah. And so it's really important when women are going out and getting these loans, because keep in mind, right, we're also a lot of times more Gen Xers and millennial women and Gen Zers, we're more educated than the men of our generation mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a generational cohort. So we're spending more on education and we've got more debt. And I think, you know, you bringing this up, Farnoosh, it's really important that, you know, federal loans give you that benefit. Yeah. I mean, always that's the preference, right? If you're going to take on student loans is to start with federal options. The other half of this question, the other half of this answer is that if you have a private loan, Laura, it's very different. I mean, you have to just read the fine print, but I will say that I, I read that I think the that Sally Mae and Wells Fargo, there are certain banks lenders that will forgive the debt in this dire circumstance. Others, it really just depends on the fine print. It may have, they may go after your estate. They will perhaps go after your co-signer on the loan if there was a co-signer. So really important to just refer back to the documents that you signed when you took on this loan. Um, I do remember articles and maybe you came across them years ago, Megan, when occasionally this you know, this extreme situation happens where a student loan borrower passes away. It was perhaps a private loan and they came after the the deceased. They came after that person's estate. They came after that person's family. In a tragic time like that, in an emotional time like that, I mean, lenders will look really evil, <laughs> you know, uh, when that happens. No, and, just- and, and then so in, as a result of the backlash, they will say, okay, we're, we're sorry. This is ridiculous. Yeah, of course, we're not going to come after the money. You would hope it wouldn't get to that point. Well, I think that all of us have to go into these loans 
with the idea that these are contracts, right? So lenders are enforcing their rights that are under the contract. And that's why, you know, as you go through this, if you're, if you're considering getting student loans for something, you really need to read every provision. And I know it's not fun to read these documents. Um, but again, it's, it's a little bit on the private loans. You know, things get hidden in these documents. And, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, I live in a community property state, the great state of California, and the community property states are Louisiana, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, New Mexico, Wisconsin, Texas, Arizona, right? So there's, there's a group of these community property states. And if I had gone and got a private loan, student loan, and I died, but I live in a community property state and it's a private student loan, my spouse might be on the hook. So this is also a big issue to think about in context of when you get married, in what state you're living in. Because, you know, if one of you passes, the survivor might get stuck holding the student loan. Important thing is to go back and just check your fine print, right? I would agree. Yes. Check your fine print. And, you know, if, if you're overwhelmed, seek out, you know, a tax professional or a financial planner you know, somebody who can help you come up with how, how to best handle it. Um, and, and, you know, it, depending on, you know, how this plays out, hopefully this won't be an issue. Hopefully it'll be paid off um, and that you won't have this concern. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, I'm just throwing out another idea here of uh, refinancing when you can, maybe if your existing lender is not, doesn't seem to be flexible on these uh, on these terms, finding another bank that would be more flexible and perhaps refinancing or re kind of like transferring the debt over to another um, lender, that is maybe something you can look into. I think that's a great idea. You know, I think I think that that gives you a lot more potential to help mitigate on the mm-hmm. on the cash flow side, but also, you know, if you and I think you're you're talking more about like the 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 private loads in particular. Right. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, can't do that with federal, but yeah. yeah for the because with private, probably you're you're okay in this kind of an ish circumstance. The other thing is for anyone who did anything where a parent was a borrower, you know, just remember you know, you're all tied together in those types of loans. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the parent, if your parent passes, you know, you're still on the hook um, for it. On the, I think they're in particular for parent yeah. plus loans. Yeah. There. Yeah. There's, well, so yeah, that was the exception I was kind of alluding to earlier. Uh, but yeah, that one I would look into specifically that one that has a little bit of a different sort of situation. There's different ramifications in, in this kind of a situation. So, Good luck to you, Laura. Very good question. I think that's something that a lot of us are curious about. Celeste uh, has a question about credit card debt. Megan, she's carrying some credit card debt at a pretty high APR. So here's Mm -hmm. the thing. She's getting invited from a company called Upstart to transfer the debt over to a loan with a lower rate, which would help her pay off the debt faster. And she wants to know what the pros and cons are. Now, I looked up the site. I wasn't familiar with Upstart before she brought it to my attention. I looked it up just really quickly, did a sniff test on the first, on the homepage. And I read that, you know, the average three-year loan, and I don't know what the terms are that they offered her, but the average three-year loan provided through Upstart is about 20%. So that comes out to about $35 for every $1,000 owed, uh, sorry, borrowed. And that's over three years. 
there's no down payment, no prepayment penalty. Um, you're, you still have to qualify through your credit, your income, and other information provided in your loan application. Not all applicants are approved. Sounds like she's already pre-approved. Not knowing, again, specifically the rate that she got, it sounds like whatever they're offering her is attractive. It's probably less than what her current credit card is at. So, you know, net-net, she'll probably save uh, on interest every month. Not knowing anything else, I mean, it sounds like in in her specific situation, if the percentage on this loan is smaller than the percentage on this credit card, I think that could be something definitely to keep looking into. Um, Some other questions Mm -hmm. I'd love to be answered are, you know what happens to my to my credit card after I transfer this debt over to Upstart? Does uh, that credit card get shut off? I would hope not. I would want you to kind of keep that credit card open because you don't want to, um, especially that credit card had a pretty robust limit. You don't want to take that off your credit report um, because having access to credit cards that have good limits is good for your credit score, especially if this is a credit card you've had for a while. Again, that history could be helpful. <clears throat> For your credit score. So just make sure that that doesn't um, automatically get turned off. And that might be more of a question for your existing credit card company. What else? Yeah, on that one, you know, the one thing I I thought about with this, because you bring up a good point, we don't have a lot of info here, right? So what we don't know about Celeste is, does she have good credit? Does she need flexible payments? Are there co-signers involved? So just one of the things to keep in mind is she talked about one firm called Upstart. But there's actually about five or six firms in this space, um, you know, from Marcus, Discover, right. Avant, Upgrade. So each of them have a different sort of value proposition in the market. And so the one thing I'd say, Celeste, is remember, there are companies whose business it is to consolidate debt and help you navigate it. And so what I would do is I would contact more than one company to understand what's out there. And, and, and before you go forward with this, really ask a lot of questions. You know, what happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? And compare the rates because a lot of times as you start to, and, and I would do it over a spreadsheet, right? Compare each one to each other. You might find out that one firm will give you a better interest rate, but another firm, because you have good credit, will give you a more flexible payment option. Mm-hmm. And so it's really trying to navigate your personal situation amongst the different providers. But never forget that you are a consumer. They are trying to win your business. And so it doesn't hurt to call more than one provider. And I'm not sure what her balance is, but you may also want to look into a 0% APR credit card that allows you to transfer mm-hmm. debt onto that card and benefit from 0% interest for uh, whatever, 12 to 15 months usually. So there it's also, it has to make sense for you, right? One, you have to be able to qualify. Usually they want pretty good credit for you to be approved, 700 credit score higher. Second, even though the interest rate is super attractive, 0%, can you pay it off within that introductory rate period of 12 to 15 months. If not, Mm -hmm. really important because then the APR does get jacked up to around 20% in many cases, sometimes higher, and then it's variable. So it could change and 
But if you think that you can do that and your balance is not super high, because some of these transfer balance cards, they they start you off with like a limit of maybe 10000 11000 So if you've got more than that, might not be even a viable option, but maybe look into that as well, or at least part of the debt, maybe you can transfer over to one of these cards and get some 0% benefit. And the other you could maybe put into one of these programs. But it's a good question. And I love what you said, Megan. Just ask, come armed with your questions and do a cross comparison. You know, go and uh, use this as leverage as you call these other places to say, hey, I got this offer. Can you do better? Exactly. Yeah. And okay. I, I think your advice is very good as well. The 0% APR, if you can get it, do it. Yeah. Even if for a part of that debt, uh, it's going to save you a lot more. Sweta, Sweta, I apologize if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly, but um, I'm uh, excited to hear from you. She says, I've been thinking a lot about managing my finances and creating budgets for your family. And so it sounds like in her case, she's got the joint account for the monthly expenses like groceries, rent, insurance, et cetera, and then an additional separate personal savings account. So her question is, do we create separate budgets to create uh, so, sorry, to track our family expenses and our personal expenses, do that separately. Um, how do our investments fit into this? She and her husband both have individual 401ks that they contribute to from each of their paychecks. I think it's uh, all a little bit of everything, right? Here, Megan, I mean, I think uh, we all, uh, we both agree on having the yours, mine, and our accounts. And it sounds like that's already the mm-hmm. way she's organized it in her household. Um, I think that what she's really asking here is about transparency and mm-hmm. right and, and feeling like even though you have these separate moving entities that it's all kind of working in harmony and i think to that to that goal it's really about effective communication um really insisting upon routine conversations around money, whether that's like a monthly check-in, having a planner helps someone like you as a go-between to make sure that all the cylinders are are running uh, at the speeds that they need to be and that everyone has um, is fulfilling their part of, of the commitments, you know, and that there's accessibility. I think for my husband and I, we do this, you know, I've, we have our separate accounts, we have joint accounts, but we do get to see it all on one platform. We usually um, use like, uh, we use Zeta, which is um, a platform for couples to be able to see all their financials on one screen. I think it helps to have that third party, whether that's a person or a platform to help you bring it all together and, and provide and pr- promote that transparency. What do you advise your couple clients? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I love when they do budgets, you know, it's very hard for people to actually do that work. You know, that's the hard work of financial planning. Um, but in this, you know, th- this, this woman's question, what I thought was interesting is it almost sounds like she doesn't mind the details that, that are required with this. And so what I, what I hope happens is that she's able to compare the budgets, you know, Every, you know, on a month by month basis to see where what I call the creep occurs in the expenses. Um, so I think the thing is having that budget, having that discussion, and then both feeling like you equally contribute to the family finances. And what I mean by that is, you know, if, if it's important for women in particular to feel like it's their money as well. And so what I, what you want to make sure is that both of you are contributing to the investments beyond your 401ks so that when you look at your investment account, regardless of where it is, you feel that it's yours. 
And that's, I think, how the investment part of it has to has to fit into this, which is, yes, this might come from my account and this might come from your account, but we are buying in the market together and our investment portfolio is ours, even though we might keep some of our finances separate. Um, and I think for for them, what they have to do is if they have the 401ks and then they have a separate investment portfolio, is you want to make sure that you're not over-owning certain parts of the market. So making sure that all the investments sort of fit together in one overarching asset allocation will be key mm-hmm. along with your budgeting. Yeah. And she didn't mention you know, anything about goals or projects that they want to accomplish together down the road. That's important as anchors to give you guys sort of like a, a roadmap. So if you know that in three years you want to buy a new house or you want a family plan or whatever, that's important. Those are conversations you need to have because those those money moves will necessarily dictate how then the budgets need to be um, designed, how you are investing, how you're saving. And so having that conversation first, I think is probably a, the best first step. But it sounds like they have, I mean, if you're, if you're in sync with each other financially, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the battles of relationships sort of oh. get solved <laughs> by that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, ha- it's more than half the battle most in most relationships. All right. We have time for one more question and it's from an anonymous question asker who says that um, I resigned from my job and I'll be rolling my 401k into an IRA. If I choose a Roth IRA, what determines the tax rate for that conversion? Is it going to be based on my current year taxable income? Um, she's fully funded or he is fully funded from, uh, has fully funded the 401k already for this year. So um, they're thinking a Roth may be better than a traditional for rolling over with the low tax bracket this year. Um, so they're, I guess it's all the, the other part of it is that they're anticipating low to no taxable income for the rest of the year. So what do you think, Megan? How does the Roth IRA tax rate get determined when you do the conversion? Is it in that current year's situation? It's, yeah, it's based, the tax rate is based on your AGI, your adjusted gross income that includes that conversion. Um, so, you know, if you have $100,000 in the 401k and you make the Roth conversion, you know, it'll be that $100,000 value plus what your other income is that's determinative of the of the tax bracket you're in. So, you know, what I often tell people with con- with Roth conversions is, you know, the rules can be a little bit tricky. You know, there are certain rules with, with basis aggregation and just making sure that it goes smoothly. So, you know, I often say this is the best type of technique you should do with a tax professional because they can make sure it's reported correctly. Um, and then I, I would also tell you, and this is this is actually something I shifted to this year, um, but, you know, if you just resign from a job and you start take, start another job, you know, the, the other thing is um, consider investing in a Roth 401k going forward, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, allows you, it does mean you're putting in after-tax dollars, so it's a little bit more expensive in the sense that you've paid the tax on the money going in, but then you're doing it, you know, on a per paycheck basis rather than all up front. Um, and then I think the last thing I would say here, and this is what comes with working with a tax professional, if you do do the Roth conversion, you do want to make sure you're paid in appropriately for withholding tests, um, both this year, the year you do the conversion, and, and next year, the year following it. Because if your income's lumpy, you might be in a penalty position uh, based on the prior year withholding test. 
So it's a little bit of tax nuance that people have to be aware of. I think I exited the corporate world before Roth 401ks became a thing. And I'm wondering... I think it's only been in the past few years. Yeah. Um, Are they becoming more ubiquitous? Is this like also part of the benefits plan that you have this option now more than ever? Yes. And the the challenge, it's, I'm seeing it more at Fortune 500 companies. Um, You know, people are doing it more. And and for young people who've never had a job, just do it out of the gate, right? Because you've never felt what it's like to have pre-tax. Um, for the for everyone else, I think that the, what you have to think about is, let's say you're funding your 401k for the year and you're putting 19,000 in the total contribution, you're really probably putting in you know 11,000 because you're going in pre-tax. Remember, if you're doing 19,000 to a Roth, you're probably paying more. You're probably putting in 26,000 if you think about it pre-tax. So there's a tax hit right. from a cash flow standpoint. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that they're great tools and I'm glad to see more employers doing them. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, Megan, thank you so much from all of your advice with how to just keep a grip on our finances this summer without completely shattering all of our goals. Uh, I know I really appreciated that advice. Megan, it's always a pleasure co-hosting with you. I learned so much when you're on this show. I really appreciate you taking the time and your generous time to come and hang out with us and give us all the good advice. And we will be sure to continue looking for you online. You blog at thewealthintersection.com and you're all over, I think you're all over Instagram. I I learned so much following your feed. Um, One of your last pieces was about the loophole that rich people follow um, to help their children get healthcare. Yeah. So to help their children fund HSAs at the higher HSA rate. So single payer HSAs can fund for $3,500. If you fund it at the family level, it's at 7000 And there's a way you can get your kids who are still on your health care plan um, but are not tax dependent to be able to fund at the higher rate. So, yeah, you can always check it out at the Wealth Intersection or on my site at Forbes. Thanks so much, Megan. And everybody else, I hope your weekend is so money. 